0: Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I am the host of the Sendcast. The Sendcast is here as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. Yes, there is lots of stuff you can go and read, but we do not have the time. And the Sendcast is this great way to get the same consistent message to schools, professionals, and parents. My guest this week is Joanna Grace. Jo is a sensory engagement inclusion specialist as well as the doctoral researcher, and many, many other things. And in this episode, we are discussing the presence of people with disabilities in research. The Sencast is created and produced by us here at v Square. and as well as this podcast, we also have our Sencast sessions, our online CPD. And on the 8th of December, Joe will joining us in the studio to deliver a session on autism. Is it neurotype or is it behavior? Um, and if you haven't accessed the Sendcast session, these are video CPD sessions, often with the same great guests you're listening to on this podcast, and we run nine live sessions and two free send briefings every year. And the sessions are £10 per school, and you can watch them live on the day or watch them later, and we'll do lots of other stuff as well. And if you're listening to this podcast after the 8th of December, 2023, you haven't missed out. You can still head over to the Sendcast website and purchase the session. And while you are there, check out all our other amazing guests who have recorded video CPD sessions for us. It's great because you can build up a really good library. Now, let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing the presence of people with disabilities in research. Discussing this topic with me is Joanna Grace. Joe is a sensory engagement inclusion specialist, doctoral researcher, author, trainer, TEDx speaker, founder of The Sensory Projects, many, many, many other things. And Joanna has worked with people with learning disabilities and neurodivergent conditions from age from birth to old age. Welcome back, Jo.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm just listening to that list thinking you should add things to it. Like oh. mother, mother of two, incompetent cook, really dreadful cook. No sense of direction.
0: <laughs> I'll, we'll discuss the cooking on another episode. We could do a whole cooking podcast. Luckily, there's no smell, so it can be really bad, and no one will know because they can't see it or smell it. So that's great. So when we, when we discussed this topic before recording, when you suggested this topic, I had no idea that people with disabilities were excluded from research. Wow. It was one of the things. I just literally went, well, they're not. It's everyone. Everyone, aren't they? And I, I literally it hadn't even entered my mind that you had to be qualified as normal and typical to be allowed to be in research.
1: I mean, people are excluded in multitude of ways. So we've done a lot of research on people with disabilities, like testing stuff on them, the way we've done research on rats and mice, for example. But you wouldn't really say that that was including people in research really simple things like if I was going to do a piece of research with you I would give you a consent form that described what I was going to do and I would ask you to sign your name to that form so if you're somebody with a learning disability that means that you wouldn't be able to read and understand that form you wouldn't be able to sign your name and it's much simpler just to do the research with somebody who can so you would get excluded just because you can't do the first bit of it which is signing the consent form And then you get other things. So when I was writing The Subtle Spectrum, which is my book about um, autism and the experience of adult diagnosis of autism and things like that, I was really shocked by how little research I could find about mental health of autistic people. Autistic people are known for having high mental health care needs. The common one that everybody says about us is that we've got high levels of anxiety. So you would think that if we know this, that we would have done a bunch of research on it. But actually, when you look at the research into mental health, it's a, I was going to say it's a relatively new field. It, we've been talking about mental health in a much more open way for a good chunk of time, but not for a huge amount of time, have we? It's like a, no. a decade or so old. And so you see this surge in research into mental health. And it's really great stuff. It's really interesting stuff. It's, it's really important. Like we've, the, the one that springs to mind is the mindfulness research. The, mindfulness used to be a thing that hippies did at festivals. And now it's good, hard science. Oxford University have a department dedicated to studying mindfulness. Elizabeth Blackburn's team won the Nobel Prize for their research into mindfulness and how it affects telomere decay. So It's gone from something that was just hippies at festivals to something that's really dealt with in science. But when you look at how that research is done, what they will do is they will get a sample of people. So say I need 50 people to do research on mindfulness on. We'll get 50 people and then we'll go, oh, hang on a minute. These three are autistic. So they might skew our findings. They might mess up what we're understanding. So we'll take them out and we'll put in three people who are not autistic and then we'll be able to do this research better. And so not only do we not have research about autistic mental health, autistic people often don't even show up as like an outlier in the existing research because they have been actively removed. (laughs) So the exclusion of people with learning disabilities and with neurodivergent conditions from research happens in a multitude of ways. And yes, very much a thing.
0: Because I have heard, and I can't remember where I heard it from, if it was you or somewhere else, that sometimes mindfulness and neurodiverse people isn't actually great. But the problem is when we read this research, as I've thought, is this covers a wide collection of people. So, there's someone like me who was involved in this research, therefore it must be good for me, and things like that. And what you actually find out is, yeah, neurodivergent people were excluded. So actually, it's good for every typical person, but we don't know for neurodivergent people if it is. Exactly
1: that. Yeah, and it's really important that we have research-informed practice in our schools and in our care settings and in our support of mental health, because if you don't have research-informed practice, then you have practice informed by advertising, like who sells their product the best. And you could be sold snake oil in various forms. And there is a lot of snake oil available to the SEN market. And so having research informed practice is really important. And people with learning disabilities and neurodivergent conditions deserve that as much as anybody else. And yeah, it will be me and the mindfulness thing. Mindfulness is really, really fantastic. And the research that has been done around it shows that it is a really, really fantastic thing. But there is emergent work that suggests that for people who've experienced trauma, it can be dangerous. And the autistic population is a population of people who experience trauma to a much higher degree. And so it, it, can, it can, I was going to say often, and then I was wondering, I haven't got the research to base that often on, <laughs> frequently in my experience. Mindfulness and autistic people do not mesh well, and it's a it's a it's a bad mismatch because mindfulness is a very well known answer to anxiety as an issue, and if you're an autistic person experiencing high levels of anxiety, which is likely to happen as an autistic person, it's then also likely that the first thing that you get offered is mindfulness, and so you have this clash
0: yeah, it's interesting, and we we're discussing this just before I started recording, and I didn't know this but a lot of medical research on medicines were done on men, historically.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah.
0: And I was going, what? And when they gave the same medication to women, it d- didn't work the same. But they hadn't done the research.
1: And you're going, what?
0: Surely we didn't.
1: We did. Yeah, there's horrible, well, not horrible work, it's good work. There's research that shows that autistic children are half as likely to receive pain medication as non-autistic children. And that's not because they're not in pain. It's because they exhibit their pain in different ways. And so when people are looking to read pain, these are, these are tangents.
0: Oh, but I love the tangents. I love the tangents. Is what <laughs> I live. But it, it, yeah, you, you assume with research that it is generally widespread. But what I love, and i mentioned this before, is if you ever see a makeup advert, or a cream advert, or any advert generally aimed at women for beauty products, and it says 88% of women agree. Look at the bottom of the screen.
1: We asked 14 women. Yes. One of them wasn't sure. It works with cat food as well.
0: Yes. But also, we asked 14 women at this time, on this day, in this place. You're going, right. So you literally cherry picked the type of people who are going They're to be one
1: standing by your product in the in the supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> We've had in terms of people with learning disabilities being included in research, in the late eighties and early nineties, we saw the rise of the disability rights movement, which the sort of clarion cry of that movement is nothing about us without us. And that has impacted Charitable fundraising. I remember when they stormed telethon. I don't know if if any of your listeners will be as old as me, but when I was very young, because obviously I'm not terribly old, (laughs) there used to be these telethon appeals on the television where you you'd see like a bank of people answering phones, and there'd be a host at the front, and they'd trot out these poor little disabled children that needed your money and beg for your money and. You sort of came on and performed your disability in order to be given charity and they fundraised lots of money. I won't make comments as to what they might have been updated into. But the disability rights campaigners bust into a telethon during the recording and came up and like stole the microphone and went, we don't want your money, (laughs) we want jobs. We want to be able to work. We want, like, we don't want to be objects of pity. We're perfectly capable human beings. We just use wheels to get around instead of feet type of thing. And you sort of saw a change. There's some fantastic campaigners, the early ones, are sort of very much in the punk movement style of things. And they had this big nothing about us without us, which the research community heard. And so the researchers who were interested in doing research about learning disabilities began asking, okay, how, how can we do this research with people instead of just doing it on them? And that's sort of...
0: And that was probably back then, that was a big thing. I literally, I'd completely forgotten about telethons. I'm like, what happened to them? And the whole journey of technology improving, so we didn't need them anymore. And you just text now or go on the internet and do it instead. But before that, we had to telethons. But no, back then, that would have been a really big thing.
1: People were really shocked that the poor little disabled people were coming on the television saying they didn't want the money.
0: The representation, the back then, there was no representation. There was so little information. And there would have just been, we don't know anything about this. All they need our help. Actually, there was no understanding.
1: Yeah. It's this sort of... Medical social model of disability, is it? A medical model of disability says that you are disabled because there is a difference in you, there is a deficit in you, there is something wrong with you, there is something. I was just reading last night, and Memo on Twitter is an amazing advocate for autistic and neurodivergent people. She was looking at the diagnostic criteria that they use to assess autistic people, and it describes things like a failure. In communication, a failure in when actually what happens is that you communicate in a different way. You don't necessarily fail to communicate, and communication is a two way thing. So, if you've got a failure, why is it just on one side of it? So, she's doing this questioning of the framing. But the medical model frames the disability as based in the person, and the social model would say that you are disabled by your experience of your environment. So, the people who used wheelchairs who stormed telethons saying, we don't want pity money, we want a job. They need to have ramp access to the workplace and lifts and a desk that they can wheel under and then they can do their job and earn their own money. And so it it depends how you see these things. And the researchers who were looking at including people with learning disabilities, they, they sort of start looking at, we did research on them, how do we do research with them? And you get these lovely projects where Research teams work to bring somebody with a learning disability into the research team, sort of to teach them how to do research interviewing and then have them go. So, there's some great projects where people with learning disabilities interview peers with learning disabilities about their experience of the old institutions or about their experience of transitioning into independent care settings in the community. And what they find is that when the interviews are conducted by people with learning disabilities, you get a much richer content from your interviewee because your interviewee is talking to somebody who is like themselves. And yes. the people with learning disabilities doing the interviewing were asking questions that the researchers wouldn't have thought of asking because there's kind of an insider knowledge to having this yeah. experience. So they were asking questions about the shift patterns of your care workers and things like that. and what time people change shift and does it affect whether you can watch neighbours, that, that kind of thing, which if you haven't lived the experience yourself, doesn't necessarily occur to you as a question. And so a few decades on, after the inclusive research movement has started, there's a look back that happens, whereby researchers look back and go, has it been useful to do inclusive research? Because obviously, It's lovely that we are now including people who were previously left out and the the people with learning disabilities who got to be the researchers and do the research felt a sense of self-esteem and pride that they'd had a proper job and, you know, they'd learned stuff that they'd found useful to learn. But actually, is it any good to research? Like, does it make for better research or does it just make us socially nicer people type of thing? And they found there's a famous paper by Atkins and Wormsley where they show that there's an added value to inclusive research, that it actually makes research itself better when it's done inclusively.
0: I was worried you were going to say it was just a nice thing. And that, <laughs> I was worried you were going to say that, going, actually, we've realised it actually didn't add. I was, I was worried, I'm, I'm very happy you said it did add something. But I suppose if we go to like autism and including autism in research is autism is a, an overarching term as it is real. It's a huge spectrum, isn't it? Yeah. So you can't say, Oh, this is what we find for typical people. And this is what we found for autistic people.
1: Yeah.
0: Because it's always a spectrum. Whenever there's an autistic person on TV, you always see on social media, that does not reflect my life is always what's coming out on social media. Every TV series, it's, that's not the right autism or it's that's not my so we always it's, it, I, I think you'll have quite a collection but what i'm interested in is you may not
1: yeah i suppose so the, so the autistic experience is by definition a spectrum and that is in recognition of the unique nature of autistic brains that <laughs> it's hard to explain it without showing the pictures of the the brain patterns but like, if you have Down syndrome, there's a, there's a greater commonality to that experience than there is to the autistic experience. Yes. And that's because autism is a term that they're giving to a differently wired brain. So it's a brain that is other than the norm. They can look at the brains and go, <laughs> norm is a bad word for it, isn't it? I, I always describe it as like when you look at a neurotypical brain, it has a type of pattern to it. And they're all different and they're all unique, but you can see the pattern. It's a bit like looking at tartan. When you look at tartan, you can see that it's tartan. Yes, there's no different tartans. It could be a particularly unique tartan, one that's woven for, but it, you can tell that it's tartan. And when you look at something else, you can tell that it's not tartan. So yes, the autistic brains are the not tartan brains, but some are spotty, some are stripy. You know. So flowers not, on don't match each other either they don't match the typical brain and they don't match each other which is why you get the term spectrum applied to autism it's not just that there's a range of experience because obviously there's a range in experience in having down syndrome there's a range of experience in being a neurotypical person that condition particularly gets the word spectrum because of the uniqueness of the brains that it yes in. so i
0: i've joined some Autism and ADHD groups, and I'm looking for all these things. I'm going. I do not relate to any of this. Yeah, I can't be. I can't be the right sort of autism. <sighs> yes. Group. Oh, you are going? Oh, everyone's doing. I'm going. No. was really fine that they create a plan and their ADHD mucks it up. I'm going. No. <laughs> no. None of this applies to me. And I'm in this weird bit. Where I'm going. Oh, where do I fit? And that's the thing. So doing research on you and doing research on me would probably yield very different responses. But yeah, in certain things probably would come out with the exact same response which
1: yeah it's an interesting one so what's happened is the inclusive research movement has tended to be successful in including people with mild to moderate learning disabilities who can understand the steps of research so they they do things like i was describing the consent form at the start maybe you wouldn't give a consent form Maybe you would show a little film that was an explanation of what was going to be involved and then you would ask for consent. Or if you're going to do the interview process rather than hold all the information about what the questions are going to be in your head, maybe you'd have some picture prompts or something like that to remind you of how you're going to do this interview. But essentially, inclusive research has been successful in including people who have a level of intellectual capacity and who have an ability to access standardized forms of communication but for people who don't use standardized forms of communication or who don't necessarily have an intellectual capacity the inclusive research movement has been less successful in including them and they are a very marginalized and vulnerable population of people and being excluded from research and not having research that's relevant to your experience is a way of becoming more marginalised and more vulnerable. So it's extra important that we find ways to reach them.
0: And it is, I think you touched on that the idea of standardised communication. We do this into this way. Yeah. We present the information this way and you need to respond in this way. Excludes the more complex few people from those researches one of the things is you're saying that i remember reading something on i can't if i get this wrong right but it's something like for non-vocal people it was as a thing i saw on social media it was my my carer's voice is not my voice
1: oh yeah oh wow (laughs) i wrote a book once about sensory rooms and as part of that book i read uh, as part of the writing of that book i read the research that has been done around the use of multi-sensory rooms and it's some of the most I mean, not all of it, and I'm I and I shan't be naming I shan't be quoting any names and dates, but it, it was like spectacularly bad in places. You get um so a classic example would be a care setting would have installed a sensory room, paying out a huge chunk of money to do it, and then they'll commission a researcher to do research to find out whether this room has been valuable, basically. They need somebody to rubber stamp the enormous spend that they've just done. So the researcher comes in and arranges for this research into the multi, you know, the use of the new multi sensory room to take place. And so what happens is they get Doris, who's normally on duty in the day room, where she's in charge of like 12, People who live in this setting, she's got to make sure that they're all going to the bathroom at the right time, or they're all clean. She's got to make sure that you know that person has their meds at that time, and that person has them, and that that person doesn't sit near that person because they don't get on. And that, there's and then she's got to remember to take the phone calls from the people who are coming in on Tuesday to do the music session. And Doris is like rushed off her feet in the day room. And then, in order to do this research, Doris is asked to take Bob down to the sensory room for an hour every Tuesday and report back on. How Bob Finds the Sensory Room. And so so Doris takes Bob down to the sensory room where it's dark and there's a bubble tube just trickling away in the corner and she sits there with Bob for an hour. And then she is asked by the researcher, how did Bob find the sensory room? And she says he found it very relaxing. He's like, <laughs> did he? Did he? <laughs> really? <laughs> or was he just wondering why it had all gone dark all of a sudden? Like, is that really what Bob, what Bob thought? So, yeah, the, the use of proxy voice in research.
0: Yes, it's, it's fascinating because I was reading these tweets and it was people who use, they communicate by whatever means, but they're able to communicate and are literally saying, and it was just fascinating what their carer said and what, or that, what their parents said and what they said.
1: Yeah. Really
0: it's, opposite.
1: It depends what you're asking, I think. So the disabled rights movement that I was talking about, nothing about us without us. That also sees the launch of the People First movement, which is are the advocacy groups which equip people with learning disabilities to self-advocate. And they are very clear that nobody speaks for you. You speak for yourself. And the power of self-advocacy is so much more effective when the person themselves communicates it. And in, in order to enable that, you have to respect different forms of communication. You have to listen to symbol communication and to you know, voice, gadgety voice communication. Um, but it's it's a brilliant thing. Um, but there are people who don't have access to those forms of communication. And a rule that says nobody can speak on my behalf then becomes a rule in which you don't get a say in situations that require, you know, yeah. to speak. And it's things like if you were asking what's the best way to care for this person, if you ask their mum, their dad, their primary carer, the person who's loved them and cared for them for their whole life, they're very likely to give you the right answer. You know, if you try and get that through creative strategies and listening, you're not going to get much directly from that person, in a way that's practical to them, but taking that like if you were to want to look after me, the best person to ask is probably still my mum. It's not me, like I'm not going to be the reliable person here. I don't think that's the situation that's true just for people who don't use mouth words and don't use standardized forms of communication. The person who loves you the most, which often is not yourself, is likely to be the person who gives the best information there. But just because in some situations that's the right voice to listen to, I don't think should mean that the research community give up on trying to find a way to listen directly. Because not every person has that primary carer. And I know loads of primary carers who are terrified about what will happen when they die and they're no longer there to voice those things. And I think it's still beholden upon researchers to try and find ways, alternative ways of listening. You know, I I put a thing in the care standards that said a person's ability to communicate is not dependent on their mastery of certain skills. It's dependent on our ability to listen. And if you start from the idea that everybody is communicative and if you don't understand what's being communicated, you need to switch up your way of listening. And actually, if you've got this gap between somebody with a profound intellectual disability and somebody who claims not to have an intellectual disability and you're not able to communicate across this divide, surely it's beholden upon the person who's got the intellectual capacity to bridge that gap rather than to say, oh, this other person needs to learn how to use this communication system or they need to be trained. Like, It shouldn't be on them to bridge that gap. It it should be on us.
0: And I think there's, like, Was it only 7% of uh, communication is words? 93% is everything else. So there are people who will have the most limited body functions can still communicate if you are listening at the right level.
1: Yeah, there's a lovely research technique that I'm borrowing from called sensory ethnography. where So ethnographers are people who go and spend a prolonged period of time in a situation trying to understand what's going on it's like it's it comes out of you know like when explorers went and lived with a tribe somewhere in a jungle to learn their ways and they did that by spending a, a long amount of time and trying to get involved and become a part of things and that's how that's how they learned it's it's sort of come from that source so ethnographers go and spend the, a long amount of time trying to understand and get alongside and be in the situation in order to have a richer understanding rather than just sort of going up Possibly. to the, like You could do a sensory ethnography on like youths hanging out beneath the street light and racing cars. You could go up to them as an interviewer and go, why are you hanging around the streetlight? What's important to you? What do the cars mean? And you would get some information. But if you go and hang around under the streetlight and get in the cars, and you get a much richer understanding of that situation. And then sensory ethnography is like a levelling up in that they're not just looking at the situation and trying to understand, they're trying to feel it through all of their sensory systems. So they will write reports about the smell landscapes of the spaces that they spent time in and the sound landscapes and the, all, all of it. And then for my work, working with people with profound intellectual and multiple disabilities who get the auspicious title in research as the most disabled members of society, that's really, really relevant because to do that listening and communicating, you need to be doing it across all sensory systems and and. It's very much a, an embodied way of knowing and connecting with somebody.
0: And it is, it's, it's any, you, you literally recognizing patterns in breathing changes, the way they move, the, any noises they make. You're going, hang on, he made that the last time I put some Craig David on.
1: <laughs> you must
0: like Craig David.
1: <laughs> I do a thing called the PMLD conference on Facebook. And we had an amazing presentation there from um National Star College, uh, which was about their support of a young woman called Jasmine and her communication through breath when When she came to National Star, I'm about to retell the story in this is my remembering of the story, so if I get any of this slightly out, it's just because I'm remembering it from watching the presentation. But when she first came to National Star, she came in kind of a a list of all the things that she couldn't do, that she hadn't been able to. She was a very complexly disabled young woman who's basically just on a bed and alive and, and not a lot after that. And the person from National Star who went out to meet her is a guy called Stuart. And when he went to meet her, he positioned himself by her on her pillow and matched her breath pattern as she was breathing. Because that's that's the output that she has, is, is breathing. And through building on that, they developed with her a way that she could indicate yes and no through changes in her breath pattern, which then enabled her to make choices about things in her life and to indicate preferences and things like that. And she very sadly, is somebody who lived a very foreshortened life. And on the day that she died, she was able to choose the film that she watched as she died by using that breath pattern. But you only get that... like She's somebody who so easily could never have had access to that you know, agency within her own life. But Stuart and the rest of the team there are willing to find ways to listen and take meaning from you because probably it's not like she would have been lying there breathing yes and no all along they're going to have applied meaning to that consistently viewed it as meaningful until she's able to recognize these people are acting like this is meaningful (laughs) and then it then it becomes meaningful you can then you can, I was watching I was in a setting this week and I was watching a teacher move somebody who's a wheelchair user who's not able to self propel and she said to the girl as she moved her she said you're looking over there so i think you want to go over there i'm going to move you over there and i have met this girl before and and she had a different teacher when i met her before and i've never seen her look in order to direct her own movement but I watched that teacher do that and you think yeah you you're going to continue to do that and if I come back in like six months time that little girl is going to be able to direct where she sits in the room by looking because she'll have figured out that when I look somewhere (laughs) I get over there but that's not it's it's the co-construction of meaning isn't it it's created between people.
0: We, we, when we see someone, we see someone in that situation going, okay, that's their body. Their brain is in the exact same state.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that we, we don't know where their brain is. We've made an assumption by the ability to communicate and things like the what's going on in their brain. And we don't know where. And there is a case of that they could be fully aware and locked in, or they could be lower. But if they can pick up that cause and effect, then you can develop. But I think we, yeah, we, we're very typical. We make, we look at someone and we make an instant decision that if that is their physical condition, their mental condition must be the same. And I think with stuff like eye gaze and many other things, and I've seen a computer where you can interact with the computer by breathing Yeah, blows me away. And then we're finally realizing there's a lot going on there. And finally people can say, I hate chicken. Or,
1: <laughs> Please stop playing Greg <laughs> David. <God. laughs>
0: They can finally sit there, and you're going, "Wow, that's why it's always a struggle when we." But you sit there going, "That makes," and it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal that we have the ability, and it's their voices should be heard. We shouldn't be just saying they
1: don't matter. Yeah, I think it's important to draw a distinction when you think of those people with complex disabilities who experience life through bodies with multiple physical and sensory impairments. Those are people who often, like you say look like they're cognitively disabled but you don't necessarily know because you could be cognitively perfectly fine just not have a body that in any way enables you to communicate that there's a real danger sometimes that we think that all people are either like you think all people with profound physical disabilities are mentally incapable or The flip is thinking all people with profound disabilities are mentally capable, but that capability is hidden inside their brain somewhere. And it's not the case. There's both groups. And so the communication, like through tech and stuff like that, the recognition that somebody who lives in one of these complicated bodies through access to the right tech or through access to responsive communication could develop their intellectual capacity could demonstrate their intellectual capacity could use their intellectual capacity is excellent but it's also really important to recognize that there are people for whom um there is no intellectual capacity yeah and there will never be any intellectual capacity and that's not having a low expectation of them that's just recognizing the reality of their situation in the way that If somebody hasn't got legs, you would say, "Well, this is not ever a person who's going to walk on legs." You you can have people with forms of impairment in which there is no brain matter. You to, to say somebody who hasn't got a brain is not going to have intellectual capacity, isn't doing them down. It's recognizing them as they are. Then the next step is to recognize that they still experience meaning. It's just that when we tend to think of meaning, we think of it as framed within our intellect. But if you can appreciate different forms of meaning, then you can start to look at how you would do research with somebody who doesn't have intellectual capacity. So my current, the doctorate that I'm studying for, I I have a sort of, there's kind of two things that I'm doing within it. So I'm doing research about identity. But my aim is to do that research with people with profound intellectual and multiple disabilities. And the with, I was trying to stress it as I said it there, it's not just like, so there's lots of research that is done with people with profound intellectual and multiple disabilities or people with profound and multiple learning disabilities as they get called in the UK. And so you'll see things like oh, people are finding out about their experience of their care home, and the person with profound disability will be will have a GoPro camera mounted on their chest strap, so that you can get the perspective of that person's experience of their day. So that research yeah. is definitely being done with that person because the camera is strapped to them. It's not been done without them, is it? They're definitely with it. You could also have strapped that camera to the wheelchair and wheeled the the chair around and got the same information. It's it's not much of a with with that person if you know what I mean. It's not like it's almost
0: as you said. It's almost done to them.
1: Yeah, because the it is their
0: view, but you're not really asking. It is just this is their view. You go well. Yeah. yeah, but you're not adding any of their context into that view.
1: They learn they learn useful things and, and it gains insight, but it's not the width that I'm aiming for. I'm aiming to do research where me and the other person, we do this research together as equal partners. Not equal as in the same, but equal as in, like if you had a seesaw that was tipping, sometimes i am got a bit more power, sometimes you've got a bit more power. And, and it's it's broadly balanced most of the time, equal in a kind of real life sort of equal kind of way.
0: You're you're not sitting right at the back. You, you've <laughs> yes. moved your seating position <laughs> oh, to yeah. go, If I sit I'm... here, it's quite balanced, and we can both enjoy this. I've just got to. I've just adjusted me to it works for both of us.
1: You've just expanded my seesaw analogy beautifully. Yes, <laughs> yeah, all those oh, tweaks l- from playground oh, days. Oh
0: yes, it, it's, it's, I, I like that analogy. But that's the thing; it is you are learning how to listen, how to include them in the research. You're asking them in a way they can, they can be part of it Uh, rather than just getting their eyeball view. To me, it's, is what you see and is what your understanding of what you see and what it means to you is a really big part of it.
1: It's an interesting one because it parallels a bigger turn that's happening in research at the moment. So it's like, there's phases that the research community go through and not phases like, oh, it just all becomes the fashion. and <laughs> They get carried away with it. Like, oh, everybody must wear pink. But just like people begin to be appreciative of something. And then because they're a very thinky group of people, they all go, oh, yeah, that's a, yeah, we should think about that. And you get this phase where everybody's thinking across different topics and across different subject areas. They're all thinking about sort of similar things. So one of the, one of the turns that you would have seen is people realising that women have been left out of stuff. I'm like, oh yeah. Like like you were just saying about the medical research early on. So yeah. you get a sort of, in terms of the dating of research papers, you get like a swathe of papers that all come through going, what about the girls? <laughs> and currently, research is looking at, um, there's a there's one of these turns going through that looks at decolonizing research. And so you'll have heard of, colonialism and we marched abroad and declared ourselves king and we know what's right and we'll take all your stuff and put it in our museums and all of that thing and we broadly speaking like think that that's done like we've we've finished we've stopped we've stopped invading with
0: guns so we're not doing it anymore some
1: of the stuff back it's like we're okay now we're fine we're not nasty colonialists anymore But what they point out is that the thought structures that led to us doing those things are kind of the historical foundations of our current ways of thinking. And so the ways in which we think still have that bias within them, the ways in which we create knowledge and construct knowledge are still biased in the same ways that created colonialism. And so the researchers are going, oh, well, they shouldn't be. And it's like the intellectual version of giving the stuff back and making sure you don't take it again, is we've got to work out how to do research that doesn't recreate the prejudices of the past and recreate the power hierarchies of the past and recreate the wrongs of the past. How can we learn and know in different ways and that work looks at, um, and I, I am not the expert in this. So this is my beginner level PhD student understanding of it. There are people who understand this properly. But it's things like hearing from unheard peoples, listening to stories that were previously hidden, going and finding the stories that you weren't told and listening in different ways. So, like I was describing the inclusive research earlier, and talking about how people with a mild to moderate learning disability have been taught to conduct interviews. Conducting interviews is a very kind of standard Western way of finding out information. It 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 has the idea that information is inside that person, and you pop up with your clipboard and your questions, and you get the information out of that person, like mining it from a ground that it's there yes that it's a thing and it's there to take whereas you could have other models of information that talk about it being created between people so it's not necessarily something you could take out of somebody because it's something that's constructed between you and I saw a lovely quote by a and I've forgotten where and I need to write it in a paper so part of my afternoon will be spent trying to find it by somebody who is doing research with the Maori population where they were saying if the if you're doing research with Maoris and with people who are Maoris and they agree to a one-hour interview with you you have failed because that is not the way that you learn and get told their stories if you want to do this research you have to go along to the festivals to the parties you have to sit and you have to be a part of the yarning and the community and the way in which they communicate knowledge, which is not the person in authority, questioner, two-way version that we. It's a much bigger, m- more interconnected thing. If you're doing research with a Mary, it should take days. <laughs> you can't do it in an hour, and it's sort of it's got that reflection in it of the ways in which you might listen to somebody who doesn't have intellectual capacity. The ways in which you might share meaning with somebody who doesn't have intellectual capacity is you need to listen in different ways and you need to be prepared to spend a long amount of time and to you know to be appreciative of knowledge in different forms.
0: now I could just go off a tangent going back from just some recent basic research i did at secondary school it kind of thing you have the it has to be done the same way there's control groups oh, we yeah. do all this and it kind of hearing all these different things going that goes against that
1: there's a, there's, that's a different shift so that's like quantitative and qualitative research there's an idea that if you can count something and then you know count it again and it's the same that that makes it really good research and that is great research if you want to know how many apples came off the tree if it's a thing you can count but like if you apply numbers to how people feel you like you could go in and you could do a survey on like staff wellbeing and go rate yourself from one to five how happy you are and that would produce you statistics and data but it wouldn't really add a richness to your understanding of that group whereas if you sit a researcher in that setting you know, put an ethnographer in there for a couple of months who really gets a feel for it and creates you a descriptive account of it that you can't draw in a graph. That's a better way to know that sort of thing than, than the can't be yes. way. And it would be weird if in that situation it was possible to repeat it, wouldn't it? Like in what situation would that ever be? Like when you go back in and do it the next time, because it's a fluid changing thing. If you found out that your research was, because in in the way that you describe, if you repeat the experiment and it comes out the same, that's an indication of a good quality experiment because you've set it all up, right, yeah. testable. Other people can recreate your experiment and then they can show that's great for quantitative work, but you know, it, would, it would be really, really weird if somebody could accurately recreate your experiment on the well-being of the staff in that setting in another setting.
0: But I think I think quantitative data is so easy to understand that people generally like. And I did a whole—you can go. I did a whole document on analysing data for SEND and the difference between quantitative and qualitative, and all of this lot. And yes, quantitative is good in this bit if you want to look at attendance, quantitative. Yeah, yeah. If you want to find out how how to improve or why, that's going to be qualitative. Mm. You can't. You're you're going to get with all these different groups of actually. No, you certain things work for quantitative, but certain things really don't. Yeah, and it's important, but people are then scared that they've got to read that whole document to understand, rather than go show me a graph, a give graph me a graph.
1: Philosophy. I mean, I come from a very quantitative background. Um, <laughs> my parents are physicists, and I did a lot, a lot of maths. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a fan of quantitative, but some things, you know, are necessarily qualitative. And if you switch them over, it's the different ways of knowing thing. It's respecting different ways of knowing and.
0: Yes. And that's the thing is obviously we at B squared, we're all about data and showing progress and things like that. And I can show you in lots of different ways, but certain points, a photo of a child doing something will give you so much more than a graph.
1: Oh, one of my colleagues in my research group is using small stories as a part of her research. So She has a photo of a situation and then there's a little story about what's going on with that situation. And the richness of that information in terms of her experience of being a parent of a child with complex disabilities is so spot on. Like in just that little sort of paragraph of a story, you get an enormous amount of insight.
0: It's amazing. I'm going to wrap it up because okay. I could ask you lots of questions about research, but I'm not sure everyone will find it as interesting as I would. Yeah. So thank you for coming on the show today, Joe. Joe's. I'm going to ask Joe for some links because generally Joe is great at sending me links. So I'm going to ask for some stuff. and also adding lots of different ways you can get hold of Joe and all the different things she does. So on her website, her Twitter, her Facebook and all that. And you'll find all of them wherever you listen to the show or on our website. Please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at the Sendcast or X. Mm-hmm. On Facebook, we are the Sendcast, Instagram, the Sendcast. And if you're listening to us through Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave a review and let us know what you think. And before we go, I would just like to remind you to check out Sendcast sessions. There's a lot of great video CPD sessions on there. And on the 8th of December, Joe will be joining us in the studio to deliver a session on autism neurotype or behavior mm. and you can join us live and be part of the q and a and ask your questions to joe or you can watch at a later date sencast sessions are 10 pounds each and are yours to watch forever and we also run free send briefings to keep you up to date with whatever is going on in the world of SEND. so have a look at the Sendcast website where you find the podcast there's a load of stuff now there called Sendcast sessions which you will hopefully find useful So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Sendcast. It's goodbye from me.
1: (laughs) Goodbye from me.
0: Bye.